Mother's Day is less than two weeks away, so if you're still looking for that perfect gift for the person that you call mom this Mother's Day, check out the link in the top of the description. Universal Yums will send her wonderful box stuffed full of treats from a different country. We're talking chocolates, savory snacks, potato chips, full chocolate bars. These things come packed full and everything in it is absolutely delicious. There's also really cool little games that you can play and little booklets that tell you a little bit about each treat that is in the box. It's so much fun and it always makes an incredible gift. So go down in the description below and click that top link and order a box from Universal Yums. The Passenger by Michael Whitehouse A friend recently alerted me to a terrifying incident that took place in an urban area of Boston. Being a bus driver, he had heard many of the usual tall stories exchanged around his local depot. Muggings, broken windows, the occasional couple attempting drunken sex, but some of the drivers had far more sinister and puzzling tales to tell. A few spoke of ghostly passengers who would pay their fare, take a seat on the upper deck, and then vanish without a trace. Those latter stories were a kind that my friend enjoyed hearing, but never took seriously, considering them cheap entertainment shared amongst his co-workers, alleviating the tediousness of an empty depot at night. That was until a fellow driver told him about Ruby. When the story was relayed to me, I was so intrigued by the account that I took time to contact all involved, piecing together what occurred as best I could. Ruby was a pleasant woman, even though she had reason not to be. In her early 40s, life was much harder than it should have been, each day a struggle. Mired in poverty since childhood, she was compelled to spend most of her time scraping and saving via two endless jobs. She found neither well-paid or enjoyable, but her current financial situation dictated the need. During the day, she worked as many hours as possible at a supermarket stocking shelves and bagging groceries at the checkout for customers. At night, she attended her second job as a cleaner at a factory that manufactured, of all things, cleaning products. The irony was not lost on her, and neither was the tediousness of each scrub and polish. At the end of every drawn-out, tiresome day, Ruby would return home at night via a long and vapid bus journey. With just enough time to kiss her 13-year-old daughter Angela on the head, whispering sweet dreams to her as she slept, before herself turning in. This short, private moment of affection was what carried Ruby through her day. It was for her daughter that she struggled. Angela's father had abandoned her when she was just two years old, and with no other family to speak of, at least none who could be relied upon, Ruby was left to work her fingers to the bone each day, clothing and feeding her daughter while paying for a series of crippling medical bills brought about by her child's severe asthma. She, of course, did not grudge the situation, for her daughter's condition had improved markedly, and that sentiment meant more to her than any amount of work or hardship ever could. One night, Ruby was asked to work a few extra hours at the factory. While she was perpetually exhausted and yearned even for the most meager of rest, she accepted the offer gratefully as more hours meant less debt. She simply could not afford to decline the opportunity. 
After the end of that shift, she stood at the nearest bus stop at around 20 to midnight, illuminated by an overhead street lamp in the darkness. There, she waited with heavy eyelids for the last bus of the night to arrive. Thankfully, the wait was not long, and soon the elongated vehicle cumbersomely inched up the road toward her. On seeing the solitary figure of Ruby, the driver pulled up to the curb before stopping. With a push of a button, the bus sneered, opening its hydraulic doors with a hiss and welcoming her into its embrace. The driver, a balding and irritable man who appeared equally as tired as she did, grumbled for Ruby to pay her fare. This she did, after rifling through her handbag for what seemed an age, finally producing the desired amount of loose change, much to the driver's annoyance. In a dazed lethargy, she wandered down the aisle, taking a seat next to a window at the back. As she prepared herself for the long, tedious route home, the vehicle shuddered back into life. The doors sealed shut before the bus pulled away from the pavement with all the enthusiasm of a drunk at last call. The wheels tumbled and stumbled with unsure progress on the last leg of their journey for the night. The engine growled, the vibrations climbing up the metal frame, rattling the windows slightly and causing the seats, which Ruby now slumped in, to quiver in response. The vehicle had seen better days and was clearly reaching the end of its life. The grime on the windows and floor, a congealed reminder of the countless thousands who'd sat in each seat, weary and thinking of home along with discarded gum crushed under the bus floor by tired shoes and the murmured grievances of passengers vented daily. Yet at night, the enclosed frame of rustling and neglected metal seemed almost serene in its apparent emptiness. With each turn of a corner, the bus juddered from side to side. While the bright fluorescent lights which beamed down from sterile fittings in the ceiling above were enough to keep anyone awake, Ruby found that sleep still lay at the forefront of her mind. But for the driver, the vehicle lay empty, as best she could tell without climbing the coiled stairs to the obscured upper deck. As is quite common with exhausted commuters, Ruby lay her head against the vibrating window to her right and persuaded herself that it would be fine to rest her eyes for a few minutes. Just enough time to find temporary relief from the tiredness that forever haunted her. As the bus turned yet another corner, the soothing, shaking movements rocked at the lonely passenger slowly, gently, and finally to sleep. How long her eyes had been closed, Ruby didn't know. But as her conscious mind came back sharply into focus from its slumber, the concern of having missed her stop presented itself. She detested leaving her daughter alone at home in the first place, never mind for any longer than was necessary. This worry, however, was soon replaced by something else. An uncomfortable sensation of personal boundaries and social conventions being broken. Of the air displaced by the form of something close. For as Ruby's eyes adjusted to the jagged fluorescent lighting once more and the bus itself shook and grunted along the darkened concrete below, she stared at her reflection in the window, a mirror image now altered from what it had been before. A chill crept up her spine as she viewed the appearance of her own overworked, sleep-deprived and worried features alongside the strange impression of the person now sitting in the seat next to her. As the city lights flashed from the outside, Ruby stared at the window momentarily. Then, 
nonchalantly turned her hand to look around, deliberately avoiding staring at the individual beside her before returning to the cold reflections in the window. This only added to the sense of unease. Other than for herself, the driver, and the passenger, there was no one else present. This was not unusual. Public transport was never that busy at night, except during the weekends, the city quite happily asleep or readying itself for bed, but what concerned Ruby was why someone would choose to sit next to a perfect stranger on an empty bus at night, especially when they were surrounded by vacant seats. Not wishing to be rude, she continued to gaze at the reflection. The passenger's appearance captivated her attention, being unusual somehow. The head bowed as if staring at the ground and the features obscured by the hood of a dark green jacket. This also added to the peculiarity of the individual. It was a summer's night and yet they were clothed as if it was winter. For a little while, they sat in silence. But as the bus continued on its journey, Ruby felt increasingly agitated. Partly by the proximity of her unwelcome companion, but more so by an unknown factor. She could not truly identify why she was so anxious, but a nervousness had begun to overcome her. The vocal silence, which was only buffer between them, poked and prodded at the sense of discomfort, pulling away at it like a scab. As seats rattled and the floor vibrated with each uneven depression of the road, Ruby peered out the window once more, attempting to allay her unquestionable yet unexplained trepidation. The street they were currently on was familiar to her, and with a welcome sigh, Ruby realized that she had not slept long enough to miss her stop. The sense of relief was enough to momentarily overcome her apprehension. While caught in that more positive frame of mind, she began to consider simply talking to her unexpected traveling companion to break the uncomfortable silence of one sitting so close. Slowly, she turned to the passenger. Laying her eyes upon the figure, its appearance was far removed from the distance and unreality of their mirror image. Immediately, Ruby felt frightened, as if staring at someone who should not be. The dark green jacket was dirtied and scuffed in places, accompanied by a musty smell. A blackened material swam around the rim of the hood where once a lighter color had lived. It occurred to Ruby that she'd not seen anything like it for many years. Made as it was from waxed canvas, a raincoat in style yet seemingly untouched by water for some time. The passenger's gender was mystery also, as what could be made out of his or her features implied neither, yet both. With head still bowed, staring down at the ground, the tip of a nose could be seen and the impression of a chin given, yet nothing more. The silence became unbearable to Ruby and with neither thought nor conviction, words simply jumped from her mouth. It's getting a little cold in here, she said, half statement, the rest a question. She was surprised that the words had leapt out, but the peculiarity of the situation urged her to break the ice, for conversation is the melody of the mundane and safe. Yet the passenger did not answer, remaining focused on the floor beneath their feet. The bus shuddered once more as it negotiated the city streets, which were almost completely devoid of life. A few minutes passed. Anxious at the lack of reply, Ruby spoke once more, remarking that the driver had seemed a little grumpier than usual. 
concluding the observation with a nervous, gentle laugh. Yet again, the passenger said nothing. Watching the world pass by outside, she decided that two attempts at conversation were quite enough. She would leave him or her alone and hope that the rest of the journey did not drag too much. Still, the desire to be far away from the strange person sitting beside her grew. And then, a sound, an unnerving noise, one which crawled under the skin of nail upon wood. Turning slowly to face her unwelcome companion once more, she found the person staring down at the ground as they'd always been. Yet the sound was coming from their seat, scratching, tearing. The passenger's hands were now poking through the gap between his or own own legs, dragging unkempt nails up and down the wooden underneath that supported the cushion material on which they sat, and doing so in a horrible, stuttering, jagged motion. The scratching sound pierced air and eardrums alike, increasing in volume until Ruby, tired and now irritable, could no longer endure it. Could you stop that, please? She asked. Yet, it continued. Please stop that, Ruby demanded, this time in a forceful tone, sharpened by exhaustion. The passenger ceased, and yet did not move or face her, not even to acknowledge her presence. Agitated, yet relieved in a sense, Ruby gazed out the window once more, trying to extinguish the growing sense of annoyance that was now building inside. She took a deep breath and calmed herself with the knowledge that she would soon be home. Rummaging through her handbag, she found a half-eaten packet of mints and began to unravel them before popping one into her mouth. Looking up, what she now saw froze her to the core. The passenger's face peered out from behind her head, eyes deep and blackened, mouth deformed and skewed, gaping wide, all captured hideously in the glass reflection. Ruby screamed at the sight of it. Shock turned to fear, and fear leapt to panic as she yelled and pleaded for the driver to help. The reflection leaned in as a rasp of cold breath climbed down the back of her neck, her body quivering in revulsions as the passenger placed a shriveled hand on her shoulder. Two of the fingers, long since removed at the knuckle. Touch was cold, and it awoke a sense of fear Ruby had never known. Clawing for survival, she shrieked as the distorted hand pulled her close. With effort fueled by terror, she tore away from the abhorrent grip, then leapt into the seat in front, scrambling over the aisle and falling to the ground, bashing her cheek against the floor. The bus rattled, hissed, and groaned as the passenger rose slowly to its feet, head now bowed, shrouded by the dark green and tattered hood. Someone help! Please! Help me! Ruby screamed, pulling herself along the floor by her fingertips, her nails clawing away at the grime. The passenger followed intently, stepping out into the aisle, proceeding slowly toward her. Scrambling and terrified, Ruby pulled herself to her feet, but as she did so, the bus veered wildly and untamed across the road. She stumbled against the momentum, but the hooded figure remained rooted and firm. The engine now roared and growled as the bus tore down the wrong side of a main road, then swerved around a corner onto a side street. Yet the passenger stepped assuredly ever forward. 
As the vehicle raged onward, Ruby screamed for the driver to stop, but then it occurred to her that the bus had long since left its planned route. It screeched across concrete before hurtling down a lane barely wide enough for a car. Then, just as suddenly, the driver slammed on the brakes and the vehicle lurched to the side before coming to an abrupt halt. Thrown by the force, Ruby grasped at a seat to brace her fall, twisting her wrist painfully through a safety handle in the process. The engine roar diminished to a weak whimper as the passenger stepped closer once more. Bruised and shaken, Ruby stumbled to the front of the bus, bashing her hands frantically against the closed sliding doors, desperate for escape. No matter how loud she yelled, no matter how many times she struck with the size of her fist against the metal and glass, it would not yield. She was trapped. Turning to plead with the driver to open the door to his cabin and shield her from the monstrosity bearing down upon her, she saw that it was too late. There he lay, draped across the wheel, unconscious or dead, his body entombed in the glass cubicle, the release button for the bus door goading her from the dashboard on the other side. Escape was inches away, yet denied by a panel of safety glass that she did not have the strength to break. A hush fell as the figure continued toward its prey. Please, please leave me alone. Ruby begged, fighting back tears. Yet the passenger did not answer. The head remained bowed as each footstep scuffed and scraped along the floor, one after the other, closer, nearer. What do you want from me? But again, no answer, for a thing that should not be needs no justification. Tears flowed down Ruby's face as the terror spread like cancer, clouding her thoughts and stimming her actions. Yet the passenger drew closer still, unmoved by her pleas. In a fit of utter desperation, Ruby turned to the driver once more. Wake up, please! God damn it, wake up! She cried. The driver remained motionless. However, the passenger did not. It was upon her, its icy breath infesting the air. It stood only inches away, the muddied green raincoat, no doubt, sheltering a grotesquely withered being inside. The figure raised its shriveled, deformed, and incomplete hand above its head. Ruby cowered in reply, but as the thing came violently at her, a moment of utter instinct took over. She ducked out of the way at the very last second. Countless shards of glass rained over her as the passenger's half-fist impacted against the driver's cabin with brute force, shattering the protective shell. Thrust by opportunity, Ruby poked her hand out of the cabin and battered the release button next to the driver's head. The door seethed open, and just as the passenger raised its hand once more, Ruby escaped into the night. The police were called, and quickly attended the scene, only to find the driver covered in glass, dazed but alive and well. He remembered very little of what had taken place, and the last thing he recalled was Ruby paying her fare before he then passed out. There was no memory of driving the bus on the final leg of its journey, nor did he possess any knowledge of the hooded passenger who had smashed the driver's cabin. With no small amount of digging on my part, I was able to contact Ruby, who, after a little persuasion, spoke to me in detail about that night. The entire ordeal had taken its toll on her, but she was not thankless for the experience. For, despite not being on its route, the bus had mysteriously stopped outside of her home. 
Stricken with terror, she had instinctively entered her tiny apartment and locked the door behind, but before phoning the police, she quickly called for an ambulance. Her daughter, Angela, had suffered a terrible asthma attack and lay moments from death on the floor. Thankfully, the paramedics arrived in time to save her. The police found no evidence of the passenger, no CCTV footage or eyewitnesses. It was as if the hooded figure had never existed, all but for one chilling reminder that it had indeed been there. For the seat where it had sat was a message clawed into the wood underneath. Two words that simply read, Not yet. In Ruby's mind, those words have haunted her more than any hooded figure ever could. For if not yet, when? Good Vibrations by Michael Whitehouse The screams were the hardest part. Standing on the dust-covered hill, looking down to the container in the darkness, the cries rose up through the air like a sea of Chinese lanterns ready to be extinguished. They did not bring light, only grief. For Larry, this was part of the job. He didn't have to like it, but he'd long since forgotten the guilt. Jessie, on the other hand, she was green. It usually took five or six times to settle into the job and accept the death for the greater good mantra, but Jessie was only 28 years old and two offerings in, so her hands were shaking as she held the remote trigger overlooking the valley below. You want me to press it? Larry said, his open palm upturned to the black sky above. Jessie shook her head, her curled blonde hair quivering with nerves. She still had a gleam in her eye, but Larry knew that she would fade soon enough. You couldn't kill so easily with the fire of hope still burning. Save yourself. Larry held a pair of black night vision goggles to his eyes to see if there was any sign, but there wasn't. He got a grim figure up there waiting for the carnage to begin, his stern gaze comfortably at home against the vast of night. It's taking so long, whispered Jesse. There's no need to whisper up here, Jess. They'll never hear you, not over the bait. Was that what it had come to, referring to humans as bait? Leary wasn't sure when he'd stopped caring, but labeling them something other than people sure made the job go down easier. Putting his hand in the right pocket of his black combat trousers, he pulled out a piece of chewing gum and threw it into his mouth. His jaw clicked with each bite, a result of having it broken during a bar fight when he was 18. Soon after, he'd found God. Now he was in his 40s, often wondering what his younger self would think about the thousands of people he'd led to their deaths. Would young Larry have understood? Probably not, but older Larry satisfied these quandaries by telling himself that time shapes morality, and only God creates time. That was a seal of divine approval. The night air was cool, but not cold. It was one of those autumn nights caught in the crack between summer and the falling of the leaves. 
how Larry wished there were actual leaves to case feet through like he had done when he was a kid. She needed trees for that. He needed life in order for it to perish. That was something that was in short supply. It didn't take this long before. Larry could hear the impatience in Jesse's voice and something else. Fear, perhaps. Some of the colleagues he'd worked with never quite got over that. The desire for the night to end. Bring out the living, let the talons of night come. Just hoped that the sacrifice would be enough to see the dawn. The dark blue container down in the valley was once used to ship goods from continent to continent when the world was whole. Now the container was merely a receptacle for what Leary's boss called the greatest gift. One of Leary's co-workers once joked that he and the others were like Santa, handing out just what the bleak ones wanted, except instead of every year it was every month, and there was much more at stake than the disappointment of not getting what you wanted in your stocking. A flicker of red and yellow poked up from the bottom of the desolate valley. To the naked eye, this couldn't be seen, but in Larry and Jesse's standard-issue night-vision goggles, the red and yellow hue was unmistakable in the pitch-black night. No one could agree on why they gave off heat just before each feast. Some scientists speculated that they had a kind of spiritual metabolism. It had to be fired up like a furnace before they ate the light. Others thought it was a form of ceremony, letting the ordained watchers know that the horror that was about to unfold and that they were conspirators with the abyss. Leary didn't care for any of that. They were evil, no doubt, but as long as he kept them fed, things would stay as they were. That was all that mattered. If they failed, only death and abomination would rule. He couldn't let that happen, even if the cost was so high. Young Leary would have railed against the injustice of it all. He would have taken oblivion any day over being part of the orderly offering up human life. But older Leary had long since had that notion worn out of him. One day he woke up and only cared about saving what was left, not any higher pursuit of morality or justice. Those were luxuries which a weary world could no longer afford. Jesse and Larry both watched through their black goggles as the red shapes moved toward the large sealed shipping container in the valley, a sea of clambering horrors ready to devour the light of each soul. From the outline of each, it was difficult to know exactly what they looked like or what shape they took. The impression from the heat signatures was of something that shifted from all fours to two and back again. Something neither beast nor human, but with an intelligence eclipsing both. There was the suggestion of large talons or claws, and perhaps a protrusion from the face, if it could be called one. But the truth was, no one knew what they looked like, only that they arrived ten years previous and began to consume the light of all who lived. They had come at night, slithering upwards from the void that hid out of the sight between the cracks of reality. Governments tried to end them by scorching the Earth's crust, but that did nothing except make them more at home. No weapon of humankind could defeat the darkness. 
They were not composed of matter. They came from a place where ideas reign, and they themselves were forged from the fallen one who was banished here, who had whispered with its last breath an idea so abhorrent, so unnatural, that it had slowly bred a festering mass of unthinkable anti-life feeding on the immortal light which resides in us all. At least that was what the church had taught. Some of it was a tough sell for Larry at first, but over time he'd come to rely on his faith as the only anchor he had left. And so he gave himself up to it, heart and soul. As each pocket of humanity fled into deep caverns underground, it was only a matter of time before the bleak ones sniffed them out too. It wasn't until some twisted bright spark realized they could be temporarily sated. And the cost? 86 human souls each and every month. Young Larry would have ran down there to help those people, pull them out of the container and hope that somehow they would make it out alive. But older Larry? No. Couldn't take the risk. Age had brought with it a cold distance from humanity, an even colder insistence on believing every word his superior said. Things were now moving at pace in the valley below. As the sharpened blobs of red and yellow writhed on the dark green display of Larry's night vision goggles, the stampeding mass reached the sealed door of the container. There was then a rumble from the valley, not an audible one, but the feeling of one's insides vibrating. Larry could feel his intestines, liver, and heart shake violently. He hated this part. It felt like his organs would be sucked out of his mouth if the sensation were allowed to escalate. And indeed they would have been, but the vibration wouldn't be allowed to grow. Not on Larry's watch. That's what the bait was for. Jesse hit it. The vibration within continued to increase. Now Larry could feel his windpipe rattling in his throat. He tensed up. The door to the container was still closed. Jesse. Larry turned to his young associate and saw the look in her eyes, wide and afraid. Something was very wrong. Jesse, press it. But Jesse didn't respond. She just held her throat as the vibration began to choke her. Unlike Larry, she wasn't fighting it. They'd been taught to tense their bodies like old fighter pilots used to when resisting G-force. There was a fight to stay awake and alive. It would buy you a little time, but Jesse wasn't trying. She was letting the vibration scramble her insides. Reaching out, Larry grabbed the trigger from Jesse's shaking hands. He released the yellow safety catch and flicked the golden switch underneath. Nothing. Only the vibration and now the escalating screams of those stuck inside the unopened container. Larry flipped the switch again back and forward. The door remained tightly sealed. I'm sorry, Larry, Jesse whispered. A cold chill fingered its way up Larry's spine. Dear God, he said out loud, not caring for the blasphemy. Jessie let out a gasp as her body convulsed. As she fell to the ground, Larry caught her in his arms. She looked up at him and smiled. Jessie, how do I fix this? Again, she smiled. Larry moved his hand toward the radio handset attached to his hip, but Jessie shook her head. No, Larry. Backup team are in on it too. 
Why? God damn it, why? I joined the priesthood to protect people, not throw them to the dark. And so did you. She coughed up blood that spilt out over her bottom lip and down her chin. If they don't get their sacrifice, then what? Larry squeezed his muscles, resisting the increasing pain of the vibration. Then, Jesse coughed again. If there is a god, he'll receive us happily for our refusal to throw his children to the darkness like garbage. Jesse, there must be another way. Larry began shaking her violently. She smiled yet again, and this time the smile stuck. Jesse's last conscious action was to reach out and grab Larry's white priest collar, tearing it from around his neck. Her body then shook violently as the vibration took over. Larry scrambled away and he looked back in horror as the vibration twisted Jessie's bones and insides. Her body snapped in the middle and began folding in on itself. Her head, neck, and arms were then pulled inward until she was no more than a garbled collection of human parts thrust together like she had been in a trash compactor. He swore blind she was still smiling. Pulling himself to his feet, Larry could now feel the vibration reaching his eyes. The fluid inside was sloshing around, and he could feel the pressure increasing. Even with his training, he couldn't survive this as long as the vibration continued. There was no other option for him or for humanity. He had to satisfy the bleak ones or they would come for what little remained. Larry rushed down the hillside, stumbling, clambering, almost an inhuman mess himself. At times, it was as though he were on all fours, a beast insatiable with one desire. The manual release, he thought, as blood vessels in his face began to weep through the skin. He'd never been so close to the bleak ones before, to the talons of night. They were writhing around on top of each other, their red-yellowed forms pulsating and shifting in Larry's goggles. With each step, he neared them, and they grew larger. Larry didn't know if this was because he was getting closer or because they were surging from the vibration, contorting and shifting in size. Something cracked in the back of Larry's skull. He felt the sensation of warm blood trickling down inside his neck, and yet he continued running, continued moving toward the container with every inch of will he had left within them. The bleak ones now moved off from the sealed container, and they were no longer paying the bait any attention. They were distracted by the gray, bloodied figure of a disheveled priest finally making it to the flat of the valley, charging toward them. Larry felt a tear in his abdomen. Something was leaking inside. It felt like being shot in the guts, and he imagined that his intestines were now cut open, spewing forth their poison and waste throughout his body. And yet, he continued. Young Larry would be proud. The bleak ones moved toward him, but they did not tear or bite. Instead, they emitted a strange sound as though they were laughing at the, this pathetic morsel of humanity. This pathetic man of a religion that had abandoned him and the world itself. Larry's Achilles tendon ruptured, and he felt the tendon rattle up the inside of his right leg like a snapped piece of tensed elastic. He fell to the ground and then dragged himself along the cold dust that had once been grass. The bleak ones surrounded him, but as he thought they were about to tear his skin from him, they parted, leaving a channel of escape directly to the shipping container. 
He looked around carefully at the silence, now only inches from the talons of night, sharp and curved, ready to disembowel but not moving. The great vibration still tearing his inners apart. They want the sacrifice, he thought. Reaching out, Leary's hand touched the cold metal of the shipping container and he pulled himself up onto his worn working leg. The vibration continued, and it was then his left eye burst open. He would have screamed if his tongue had now swollen to such a size that it almost blocked his airway. In all the pain and all the well of agony, Larry the priest reached up and felt the manual release level at the door of the container. With all the strength that was left in him, he pulled it and then the door opened. He pulled back to reveal 86 cowering people, mostly the old and infirm. They were gaunt and frightened, and they looked at Larry's bleeding face with the hope that he would help them. They begged for mercy, their eyes wide, haunting, and utterly desperate. Larry had never seen the bait in all the years that he'd been offering them up as a sacrifice. They'd always been loaded in before he turned up for a shift. That had always made it easier, to not see those pleading faces, to not see their agony. Out of sight, out of mind, and with such distance, Larry had been able to remove their humanity somehow from his guilt. But now that illusion had vanished. In those expressions, those wild cries for mercy, something stirred in Larry, something that he had abandoned in himself for many years. A fragment of that 18-year-old kid who had his jaw broken long ago in a bar fight. The man who wouldn't take anything the world gave lying down. The one who relished fighting back against a world coming undone. He would give the world a bloody nose and let it know it'd been in a fight even if it meant nothingness. As the bleak ones readied themselves to feed, their furnaces inside firing up once more, Leary the priest pushed the lever up, the doors of the container closed once more, sealing the people inside away from the monstrosities which surrounded them. Leary then turned and said something before feeling his very soul being torn from his body one vein at a time. If anyone had been there to bear witness, if any greater power was indeed watching from upon up high, they would not have been able to make the words out from between Larry's now shattering teeth. Whatever he said, it was filled with defiance against God, against the bleak ones, against it all. And in that moment, humanity showed its worth. <laughs>